Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and um, today I have uh, been double booked, as it were, by my uh, assistant. He scheduled two guests online for me to do. We did one this morning, which um, you have may heard already, or maybe you haven't, but uh, this afternoon I am going to be talking with an author and someone that I interviewed a number of years ago um, when I was doing another podcast, uh, one that we won't name, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. But I interviewed him on a couple different topics, and today we're going to be having Dr. J.V. Fesco on to talk about a new commentary series uh, that he wrote, basically the inaugural edition for the series. The the series is called the Lecto, Lectio Continua Expository Commentary Series on the New Testament, and so we're going to have Dr. Fesco on to talk about that book and more about that in just a minute. As usual, um, you can write me at the podcast if you have any questions or concerns, you want to suggest guests, you can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. And if you want to find out more information about the seminary, you can visit our website at gpts.edu. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. So we're out there in just about every social networking uh, medium, if you like that word, that exists out there on the Internet. So feel free to drop me a line. I do everything I can to respond to every email that does come my way. So please write in, let us know how we're doing, how we can improve, and um, I would appreciate it. As I indicated, we're going to be talking with Dr. Fesco today about his new commentary series on Galatians. Uh, Dr. Fesco uh, has his Ph.D. from King's College in the univer- at the University of Aberdeen and is the academic dean and associate professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary in California. And so it's great to have you on, Dr. Fesco, again. And we haven't talked in quite a while, but um, I look forward to this discussion about this, what it looks to be a, a, to be a very exciting and um, uh, refreshing series uh, of commentaries. Yeah, it's great to be with you and to be able to discuss the uh, expository commentary series as well as the particular volume that I've contributed to it. I think you're right. You know, I mean, as I <laughs> looked at the uh, lineup of contributors uh, for the future uh, volumes that are set to come out, uh, I'm pretty excited as well about uh, the number, not only the volumes, but as well as the the particular authors for each uh, particular installment. So I think, it, yeah, it looks really exciting. Yeah, it does. I, just to give the listeners some idea of what um, what he might be referring to, um, First and Second Thessalonians, for instance, will be written by uh, Daniel Hyde, um, a, a gentleman that I've also interviewed in that unnamed podcast, and then the Gospel of John by Terry Johnson. Uh, First Peter will be by the editor, or one of the editors, uh, I think he's actually the editor, John Payne, and then Kim Riddlebarger will be doing First Corinthians. So that looks like um, as a good beginning, because certainly there's more to come behind that. But your particular volume, Dr. Fesco, was on uh, the book of Galatians. And um, I guess I'm interested in knowing, um, first, how did you get associated or involved in writing uh, these commentaries or this commentary for this series? What attracted you to it, or how did you come to find out about it? Well, a number of... Uh uh, months ago, and when I say a number of months ago, it's probably close to two years ago or something to that uh, effect. I'm horrible with math. But um, <clears throat> I was contacted by the uh, series editor, John Payne, to see if I would be interested in uh, producing or contributing to the uh, series. And he gave me a, a brief you know, description as to the, the series itself, that it was 
uh, supposed to be, uh, you know, redemptive historical in terms of uh, focusing not only upon the text itself, but upon, you know, the broader uh, patterns of redemptive history, but also uh, committed uh, rigorously uh, to the application of the uh, of the Word of God uh, to the lives of not only the readers, but hearers of the preached Word. But also it's this idea of uh, the Lectio Continua, or the continual reading of the Scriptures, which uh, in many ways I think was... Uh, heavily recovered and promoted during the Reformation and post-Reformation periods where uh, ministers uh, would preach uh, continually through various uh, books of the Bible to their congregations so that you would, uh, in the course of however long the, the minister took in his pulpit, you would get exposed to the entire an entire book of the Bible, and not just an entire book, but oftentimes uh, entire books uh, of the Bible. And so with those, uh, I think, chief... Um, principles and commitments set forth for the uh, series, uh, you know, I thought, well, sure, I'd, I'd love to participate. And uh, at that particular time, uh, John asked me if I wanted to contribute uh, with the uh, with both with Galatians and or uh, as well as Romans. And I was uh, certainly thrilled uh, to be able to uh, get those, uh, you know, get got offered to 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 write for those uh, those two books of the Bible, of the New Testament in particular, because as most people, you know, usually want, those are, you know, two of the, 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 the very high in demand books, whether you're talking about Romans, which is, you know, one of the uh, most famous books of the, of the New Testament, if not of all the scriptures, but as well as Galatians as well, because they deal with uh, such um, key themes uh, dealing with uh, our redemption and salvation and the personal mm. work of Christ, the doctrines of justification, sanctification, the Christian life, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, so I, I jumped at that opportunity, uh, especially as well as when I, you know, saw the other names uh, being recruited uh, for the series, knowing that uh, I think that uh, all of the names that I can recall off the top of my head were just, uh, you know, godly men. Uh, committed to uh, preaching Christ from all of Scripture, and so uh, with those, I think chief points set forward. I thought, yeah, absolutely. I'd, you know, I'd love to contribute. So um, the, the clock started ticking, and uh, I got to work on, uh, you know, working over uh, the Galatians material uh, that I had uh, previously uh, preached in a sermon series when I was uh, a pastor uh, at an OPC church, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, in the greater Atlanta area, and I had preached through Galatians, so I began to rehearse and, and review that material and began to, uh, I guess, put it into its present form. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, it was a tremendous blessing, and I really uh, really enjoyed contributing to it. And I hope that you know people find the um, you know the uh, contribution helpful in their own under, uh, seeking to understand uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Yeah, absolutely, and and. I heard you mention Romans. Now, am I to understand then that you'll be doing the one with Romans as well? That's the plan. That's the plan, and uh, you know it's gonna it's gonna be uh, it's not gonna be out for some time, but uh, you know I'm already uh, plugging away at that, working on that. Uh, in you know one sense, uh, reviewing uh, older material that I've worked with as I preach through Romans, but at the same time, sometimes overhauling uh, you know what I wanted to say. Uh, it's like um, you know, preachers are rarely satisfied with what they deliver. And I think that's especially true. The longer that time goes by, you look at something that you may have preached uh, five, ten years ago, and you wince. <laughs> 
right. <laughs> as you uh, as you look at it, thinking, "Oh, I'm not so sure I would put it that way. Let me see if I can adjust it and and put it in a more precise way." So, but yeah, that is the plan uh, as of now is to be uh, you know working on uh, producing the Romans volume as well. You mentioned uh, some of the men you'll be working with uh, as it pertains to this series, and and I was looking through. Um, some of the consulting editors and, and names that just jump off the page to me, Dr. Guy Waters, mm-hmm. uh, Ph.D. from Duke University and professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary, Dr. Joel mm-hmm. Beakey, who, have, who I've also interviewed in the past, um, and most people know who he is, professor of systematic theology and homiletics and president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. What, what benefit does that bring to you as the author when we say consulting editor what what is their job what is their task um when it comes to these kinds of these types of commentaries well typically what happens is that you know you have the individual author he goes and uh uh, you know, puts together his manuscript and then submits it to the um, to the editor, and then the editor reads over the manuscript and makes whatever kind of various uh, observations, uh, things to improve, things to correct, those types of things. But in terms of a consulting editor. Uh, they will uh, typically uh, read over the manuscript as well, uh, just to see if there are you know any kinds of things that needs need to be tightened up or corrected, what have you, so that uh, through the editorial process, it's not just the author's eyes that pass over the page, but it's a number of um, editors that go over it, whether for uh, not just for grammar, but rather uh, ultimately for content. Uh, and for theological accuracy. Mm. And so in that respect, to have those, uh, you know, aforementioned uh, names that you've associated as the, uh, or identified as the uh, consulting editors, it's it's helpful to know that uh, there are other well-trained, uh, you know, uh, theologically astute uh, individuals who are looking over uh, these manuscripts uh, so that when the reader gets the final product um, in his hands or her hands, uh, they're getting something that has passed through a number of editorial uh, um, uh, reviews, uh, so that it's not just straight from the author uh, to to the publisher. Or, I mean, sorry, to the reader, because I think so often, especially nowadays, more so in days past, that somebody can quite easily contract a uh, a printer to manufacture, um, you know, their book, or they can publish it uh, via the web or online or whatever the case may be. But mm, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that it's undergone a, a rigorous um, uh, scrutinization of the content to make sure that it's not only sound and orthodox, but that it's edifying as well, uh, and that uh, it's helpful uh, to the reader and hopefully, uh, God willing, to the broader church. So it would be... Uh unless I uh, misunderstand it, it, it's similar to having uh, like a peer review, like in a theological mm-hmm. journal where people are actually right. reviewing your work and they're checking and double checking and um, really ins- uh, ensuring that when it actually comes down to the reader, the final product is of sound biblical integrity and, and so forth. So it has that Correct. same absolutely. feel. Of, okay. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah. now when we're talking about an expository commentary, there's and and I think this is something that the listeners I think would benefit from tremendously. There's different kinds of commentaries that exist out there. I mean, you've got you know Calvin's commentaries. We've all heard of those, and you know you've got the, the New Testament commentary series by Hendrickson and Kistemacher is just ones I'm throwing off the top of my head. 
And but I wouldn't classify those as expository commentaries. What, what are what's an expository commentary? An expository commentary, I think, is aimed uh, more so at the final product of uh, what is going on, and that at the most fundamental level, you would have the exegesis, and in this case of the New Testament of the Greek text, where you're looking at uh, different uh, grammatical formulations. How what does what are the tenses of verbs, and uh, you know what's the specific grammar and nature of what's going on. Uh, and so commentaries, uh, biblical commentaries, will focus upon those types of what I would call nuts and bolts types of exegesis of the text. And in those commentaries, they are frequently, though not all of the times, but frequently unconcerned with, say, how the text is, should be preached, uh, what type of points of application there might be, um, etc. Whereas an expository commentary is looking at the text uh, in terms of more of a finished product in terms of I'm not going to tell you that there are six different views to this particular uh, verse, but rather I'm going to more or less give you this is you know what I understand the verse to be, and um, not only here's the verse, but it's in its broader context, and then if this is what the text says, therefore here's uh, what it's pointing out about the person and work of Christ, and here's how we would understand it in terms of our own responsibilities and obligations to the text, whatever those might be. Uh, so... Uh, you know, if you could, you know, if I could use the analogy of, um, you know, building a car, uh, you know, an expository commentary will take the car and take it out for a drive, uh, whereas uh, a regular commentary will disassemble the car and have the car strewn about the garage <laughs> and putting together mm. maybe individual parts, but not necessarily uh, taking it out for a drive per se. Although there are some commentaries that. Uh, you know, kind of ride that middle ground where they will have some considerations for how it might preach or what the final interpretive, um, you know, overall goal of the uh, text would be. Are there any negatives to, um, I mean, certainly when a person is sitting down and, and consulting with commentaries and working to prepare a sermon, let's say, though commentaries aren't strictly just for that purpose, but if they were, if, if I was sitting down to prepare a sermon on Galatians, um, mm -hmm. is there uh, any negative or danger to looking at only an expository commentary, or should should a person seeking to put the sermon together uh, consult different types of commentaries, different flavors of commentaries in that sense? In other words, I don't necessarily want to restrict myself to those ones that strewn everything across the garage and, and sort of lead me to pick mm -hmm. up the pieces mm -hmm. and figure it all out. But on the other hand, I don't want you to write the sermon for me either. In other words, I don't right, want to read no, your. Um, I think you understand what I'm where I'm going with that. Oh sure, yeah. I think for the minister, who is in the the regular weekly rigors of preparing sermons, you know, there's that necessary, um, I think, uh, exegetical process, that fundamental, uh, you know, uh, basic point of t going to the text itself, exegeting the scriptures from the original languages and determining uh, what the text says and thinking through its implications. Uh, and then uh, and from there, consulting with uh, exegetical commentaries, because there may be um, uh, challenging issues uh, at the level of Greek exegesis that somebody will have to consult the commentaries on. But I think in the uh, sermon preparation uh, process, you know, at its very best or at its most ideal levels, it's, there's the desire to want to consult a broad scope of reading 
you know, so that you cover the waterfronts, not only covering, um, uh, you know, very academic types of uh, you know, expositions of the text or exegesis of the text, but also um, higher level reading in the sense of uh, one that, you know, asks the questions of terms of uh, how does this text, how should it be preached, what types of application are there, and uh, it may uh, cause somebody to think about things that they might not necessarily think about, mm. uh, applications that they may not have considered or implications of the text. And at times, too, often expository commentary will draw in from broader reading sources and, and uh, citing whether it's things going on in the surrounding culture or perhaps in the church. Or I, I'm reluctant to say uh, current events, uh, because I don't want to, you know, say that all expository commentaries do that. But sometimes they bring, perhaps, current trends uh, in the in the uh, uh, under uh, in the surrounding world around us. And so all of that to say is that uh, I think that a good expository commentary is part of a good healthy diet, if you will, in uh, terms of the minister's uh, reading habits uh, for sermon preparation. But it's also helpful, I think, to uh, elders uh, who might not have the time to consult the, uh, you know, the uh, exegetical commentaries or may not have the language facilities uh, to engage uh, the original text in Greek or you know, Hebrew, whatever the case may be. Uh, but it's also, I think, beneficial to seminarians who are learning about the process of preaching uh, so that they can see, hopefully, ideally, uh, what a good sermon looks like upon a text after they've done some reflection upon it if they haven't had the chance to sit under good preaching in the past. But also, too, for, I think, to, for, you know, lay, uh, laymen who want to get a better understanding of the text, um, that they can hopefully benefit uh, from uh, expository commentaries. Yeah, and I appreciate the way you answered that because it got me thinking about the layman. Um, when I look at an expository commentary, not just this one that I that I have in my hand, but I have a number of them on my shelf, and and they've been putting even Cal, Calvin sermons uh, in in book form, and it, it's certainly different than some of these heavier intellectually driven, academic driven commentaries that I also have. Um, but what I appreciate about the expository commentary series, regardless of which ones that are, is that they read like a book, whereas some of these heavier exegetical commentaries, it's not quite that way, and it's a little cumbersome sometimes to weed through some of the material, and it's not written that way. It's just not, that's not its intention. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned the layman or even the ruling elder who may um, not have the language uh, abilities and capacity to to weed through some of those technical things. This gives, uh, in a very readable format, um, something that will help ground them in the the, the central themes and, and discussions of the book. Um, and I and I think that's very helpful in the long run uh, for for the for the most people. Um, but on the other hand, I I would look at an expository commentary as a seminary student, but then I would also be looking at some of the more technical ones as well, kind of comparing them, lining them up, and doing that kind of thing. Um, the book of Galatians, um, you obviously were given this opportunity to write Galatians, and um, and you indicated in the, in the introduction, in the opening of the program, that it's one of the two books in the New Testament that um, probably stands stands a little higher than the others, if, if you know what I mean by that. I don't mean 
more inspired sure. or anything else. It's just more popularly driven, more people tend to, when I say Galatians, they can pretty much tell you that that's the, that's the book where Paul comes out swinging in chapter one and, you know, levels the playing field as it were about some of the issues that were going on. What is going on in the book of Galatians? What is the, the what is Paul's central thesis? What's he trying to do with, with the church at Galatia? Sure. I think, um, aside from the fact that the Apostle Paul was obviously concerned about the spiritual health and well-being of the church in general, I think uh, he had a special relationship with the churches in Galatia because these were churches that he personally uh, participated in planting of these churches. And, um, you know, as Paul uh, notes in a couple of places in Galatians, you know, that uh, very soon after Paul left, um, interlopers, uh, false teachers descended upon the Galatian churches and began to uh, give uh, forth false teaching. And so Paul, uh, uh, you know, said, I'm so I'm amazed at how quickly you have turned away uh, from the gospel. And so I think at the most fundamental level, uh, Paul is uh, desperately concerned uh, for the integrity of the gospel that he preached and gave to the Galatian churches, that they then began to depart from that one true gospel. And uh, Paul even makes the point that shows us that it's uh, you know salvation and damnation that is in view, not just in terms of just uh, a person's well-being, so to speak, when he says in the opening verses of uh, Galatians chapter 1 that if uh, uh, an angel from heaven comes down and gives you another gospel other than the one that we gave to you, you know, let him be anathema, let him, let him be under God's curse. And then he goes and repeats that again, uh, you know, a second time, I think, uh, making it emphatic that uh, eternal life and death is in view. And I think the, the chief nature of uh, the Galatian heresy was the idea that you had uh, Gentiles being brought into the church uh, through uh, believing in the gospel, through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and accepting him uh, by faith and faith alone. And then you had Judaizers. Uh, these were uh, most likely um, uh, Christians uh, who were Israelites uh, that had converted uh, to, and to, or at least had embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and received the gospel. But then uh, they began to um, say that, well, a person can, uh, can only be saved, it's through faith in Christ, and uh, also a person needs to be circumcised. Mm. <clears throat> in other words, I think from a Jewish standpoint or from a, uh, a converted uh, Jew's standpoint, is that I think there was this difficulty in understanding how on earth Gentiles could be brought into uh, the covenant people apart from this covenant sign of circumcision that had marked them uh, for, you know, uh, over a thousand years, longer than a thousand years, closer to 2,000 years, um, you know, ever since uh, God gave to um, Abraham in Genesis uh, chapters uh, 12, 15, and 17, and then again in 22, but gave to Abraham in Genesis 17 the sign of the covenant. So how could somebody be in possession of uh, uh, redemption and eternal life and everything that comes through our union with Christ apart from this covenant sign? And so uh, in that sense, I think that that was the chief problem. It's that it wasn't that they were denying the necessity of believing in Christ, but rather that they were adding to, uh, you know, the necessity of faith in Christ, and they were um, 
challenging the exclusivity of faith, saying that a person was to be saved by faith and works, uh, in this case, uh, circumcision. And so, you know, Paul goes on uh, in the book of Galatians to address that, that particular issue, but also issues that are more broadly, uh, you know, related to redemption in general. And he does so not only by engaging the Galatians on this particular issue and the, the, the question of uh, circumcision and why it's no longer necessary, as well as why Gentiles are not obligated to be circumcised. But he also does so conveying these biblical truths in the robes or the garments of redemptive history and the unfolding plan of redemption that the new creation, the new heavens and earth, are, have arrived they have arrived with the advent of Christ, with his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And I think the chief problem, the chief problem that, uh, that uh, the Galatian false teachers uh, were purveying and were, you know, that they, as well as the, the point that they did not understand, is that redemptive history had taken a decided step forward with the advent of Christ. And they were, in a sense, trying to um, take a step backward to turn the clock back, not realizing that uh, the clock has irreversibly moved forward. Uh, it's much like uh, somebody who has completed a building wanting to put back up the scaffolding around the building because they just can't imagine the building being there apart from the scaffolding. Uh, well, in many ways, I think we could say that that circumcision was part of the scaffolding that uh, was pointing forward uh, to Christ and his work or to the building. But once the building is completed or once the building has arrived, there's no need for the scaffolding. And so they were trying to bring that scaffolding back. And Paul was basically saying, no, 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 you're misplacing uh, your confidence. You're misplacing uh, you know, your understanding of uh, the progression and unfolding nature of redemptive history. You can't turn the clock back and you cannot... Uh, place your activity at the core of um, uh, of your salvation. It ultimately uh, relies exclusively upon the person work of Christ. And if you try to subvert that by saying that circumcision is a necessary action on your part in order to be saved, uh, you are bringing yourself under the obligation of being obedient not to one part of the law, to the whole of the law. And if you do that, you will inevitably fail. Uh, and that only Christ has um, ful perfectly fulfilled the law, and not only perfectly fulfilled it, but has borne its curse on our behalf so that we might be free. Now, I'm borrowing language from Romans here at this point, but this, mm -hmm. we may be free to walk in the newness of life. Um, or in this case, what Paul might state it in, in Galatians is, so that we may be free, so that faith may work through love, and manifest uh, the fruit of the Spirit, that new creation fruit, as uh, as the result of the outpouring of the Spirit upon the Church. It, it does seem that the book of Galatians, um, I, I grew up in a dispensational background, um, I, I heard a number of sermons and, and whatnot from from the book of Galatians, uh, zeroing in primarily on this this issue of law. And um, and as you understand the dispensational hermeneutic and their approach to biblical interpretation, it seemed to make pretty good sense. And then I came to understand the Reformed faith and um, realized that 
a lot of what I was taught from the book of Galatians on the idea of law was very incorrect. But yet Paul seems to um, lay waste, as it were, to the law in the book of Galatians. What, what is he really getting at there? I mean, is he doing away with the law, or is there something more pointed in that section? I'm thinking of, um, what chapter am I thinking of? Showing my ignorance uh, here. Galatians 3 and 4. 3, but I three and 4. talks a lot about the law there, you know, in both of those chapters. Sure. Yeah, no, um, I think that he's not, um, he's not uh, doing away with the law, but... Rather, as I think, if I recall correctly, in First Timothy, he says that um, the law is good if one uses it properly. And uh, in particular, I think that one of the things that the false teachers had failed to understand is uh, the nature of the law. I think that they believed that the law uh, was somehow there um, uh, to be able to, um, you know, to demonstrate their fidelity uh, to Christ, and in particular, their fidelity vis-a-vis their justification. In other Mm. words, God's uh, judicial declaration that a person stands righteous uh, as far as the demands and requirements of the law is is concerned, not just in terms of, you know, uh, has the curse of the law been removed, but rather, not only does the curse have to be removed, but also... The um, the law has to be positively fulfilled. Uh, it's for example when a person stands in a court of law, and they are cleared of uh, you know of, of the criminal charges. All of the all the court is saying at that point is that they're innocent of wrongdoing. The court does not say that they have also positive, positively fulfilled the law. In other words, okay, you may be cleared of theft. But the judge will not say, not only have you not stolen, but you've given freely of your possessions to others. Well, in this case, that's the nature of uh, justification. To be justified is to be declared righteous. In other words, not merely cleared of criminal, the criminal violation of the law, but uh, or in terms of transgressing the law, thereby incurring its condemnation and judgment, but also fulfilling it positively. Um, and so, you know, that's the nature of righteousness. And so when Paul begins to set up and explain what the law's function is, uh, you know, he shows that in one sense, you know, that yes, um, you know, here's how the law functions. Uh, and he quotes Leviticus 18.5, uh, mm-hmm. third chapter uh, in uh, Galatians chapter uh, 3, in uh, Galatians chapter 3, um, verse uh, verses 11 and 12, uh, and he, actually in 10 he says, "For all who rely on works of the law are under the under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them." Quoting uh, quoting Deuteronomy 27:26. Now it's evident that no one is justified uh, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And here there he quotes Habakkuk 2:4. And then in the next verse, but the law is not a faith; rather, the one who does them shall live by them. They're quoting Leviticus 18.5. I think very fundamentally there, Paul is showing how the law works. Mm-hmm. He's saying, if you do it, well, then you'll be justified. And, and that's the way the law works. The, the law simply declares whether somebody is guilty of its violation or whether they have met its demands. And I think that that's what, what the, uh, the Judaizers understood that, but what they didn't understand is that there was no way that they could fulfill all of the requirements of the law because, as the scriptures say elsewhere, say in the book of James, to violate the law at one point 
is to violate the whole law, as well as they also have the albatross, as do we all, of original sin hanging around our necks so that we can in no way uh, fulfill the obligations of the law. But what, it, and, and you know, I think that he, uh, Paul emphasizes that. Um, he emphasizes that, uh, you know, by saying that uh, it's not that the righteous shall live by their works, but rather the righteous shall live by faith. And he says the law is not a faith. In other words, you do the law and you believe the gospel. And that's the fundamental error that uh, the Judaizers uh, made. They thought that you did the gospel, if you will, rather than believe in the gospel. And so when Paul says the law is not a faith, he's saying, you know, you don't believe the law, you do it. And where he begins to show there is fundamentally it's Christ who comes on our behalf and does the law. He fulfills the law. And uh, not only does he fulfill the law, but as he goes on in uh, verse 13, you know, he says that God, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming mm-hmm. a curse for it, for us. Mm-hmm. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ fulfills the curse of the law for us. He bears that curse, but he also positively fulfills the law for us so that we are righteous not by doing, but by believing. And that's why he says there, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, that uh, cursed, I'm sorry, not, uh, the, the, one, no, the righteous shall live by faith in Galatians 3.11, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he goes on in the very next chapter, and you know, because the, the natural question that begins to come is, is that, well, wait a minute, okay, if, if we're not justified by the law, then what purpose does the law serve? And uh, you know, Paul answers that question in the latter half of the third chapter, uh, saying that essentially uh, that the law does not void the promise that he made uh, to um, to Abraham. He says in verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, it was added to highlight uh, the sinfulness of humanity until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Uh, and so it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, and then he goes on to say, but long story short, is it's to highlight sinful, the sinfulness of humanity and to highlight our need for Christ, as well as to hold uh, Israel in captivity. And this is interesting language there that Paul uses captivity language uh, to characterize the law, which is the same language that the Old Testament uses for Israel's bondage in Egypt and uh, Pharaoh as their overlord. And Paul is showing that the law, apart from Christ, is no friend, that it brings condemnation and death, and it's a cruel taskmaster because it shows us uh, how sinful we are and it condemns us. And it's only in Christ that uh, we become heirs of the promise. It's only through faith alone that we become heirs of the promise, faith alone in Christ alone. And that's how, you know, Paul goes and I think, you know, trumps the Judaizers quite brilliantly, uh, even though it's obviously an inspired brilliance, is that he says, you who are desiring to demonstrate that you are sons of Abraham so desperately through your circumcision, you know, if you believe in the promise of the gospel, then those are the true sons of Abraham, not through circumcision, uh, but through faith. And then Paul goes on to uh, explain those uh, and contrasts, uh, you know, that um, Mount Sinai produces children of slavery, and uh, Mount Sinai is Hagar, 
the slave woman, but uh, Mount Zion is, or the Jerusalem above, uh, is uh, Sarah, the mother of the uh, the free uh, free children, the children of the promise. And he says that the children of the free woman will outnumber those uh, of the uh, slave woman. So it's just a beautiful contrast in that regard to show that apart from Christ, the law is no friend. It's uh, It brings condemnation. And it's only in Christ that we then understand and receive the law as a friend, as a guide, if you will, or what you know, Reformed theology uh, historically is called the normative use of the law or the third use of the law. Uh, so right. that we know then how we are to live the Christian life uh, once we are uh, incorporated into Christ. Yeah, it, do, it does seem that the the message to the the, the church in Galatia um, is the same message, as it were. Um, even in, t- in the 21st century, we still have people uh, in the church, outside the church, who are still trying to make themselves right before God in some way, making themselves appealing to God and doing enough of this or doing enough of that or not doing this and not doing that. And, and it seems like this book, uh, the book of Galatians, while I'm being overly simplistic, um, really cuts through all that garbage and says, no, that's not the issue. Um, and I really appreciate what you said, even on page 87 of the commentary, where you all but come out and say that, where um, you say it is vastly important. And when I, whenever I read an author, and when, when an author says it is vastly important, uh, that is one of those triggers in my mind mm-hmm. that says, pay attention to what's coming, not only for <laughs> our salvation, but also for our sanctification, that we understand what Paul has explained here and Chapter, chapter 3, 19 through 22, immediately as it concerns Paul's point, his explanation of the law mm-hmm. clearly refutes the teaching of the Judaizers. Our salvation is not a combination of our faith in Christ plus our good works, and, and we can right away think of a system of theology that advocates that from beginning to end. That would be, of course, Romanism. Um, sure. And then it, you go on to say, salvation and justification come through God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, I mean, to me, that just captures the whole, that, that's the gospel. That's, that's the, the whole point that Paul is driving at here. But it does prompt one question for me as I think about just what you said there. When you somehow separate salvation and justification, are those separate things or are they part of each other? No, they're both uh, part of one another, and that the way that I would relate the two is salvation is the overarching concept mm-hmm. that incor- that encompasses, incorporates, you know, broadly considered our union with Christ, but in terms of our election, you know, effectual calling, um, uh, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And so that justification is one part of our salvation. Uh, but I think that you know one of the points that um, I you know I try to remind myself of in terms of my own own personal devotional studies, as well as uh, you know trying to uh, teach these things and rehearse these things with my family, my children, my sons, as well as my students and anyone I preach to, and you know when I used to be a pastor, is that um, I think you can encapsulate in many ways. Uh, Paul's uh, message in Galatians that he gives in great detail 
uh, but you can encapsulate it in what he says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, you know, Paul uses a broader term there, we're saved by uh, grace uh, through faith, um, and that we're not saved by our works. And I think that that's what uh, the Judaizers uh, got wrong. They didn't understand that. Uh, and like you said, that's what so many in the church get wrong. And it, in our context, it's not going to be circumcision, that they're trying to somehow merit God's favor or curry his favor. It's going to be a host of other things, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever they may be. Um, but um, in that case, yeah, no, we have to understand that it's all by grace through faith. Um, and that uh, Christ is the one who saves us. And then the doing, or the good works, which is just one part of sanctification. Uh, sanctification has a lot more to do with than uh, just good works, but the doing, if you will, then will naturally arise uh, because of what Christ has done in us through the Holy Spirit by faith. And that's what Paul goes on to address large in part in the, uh, in the fifth and sixth chapters, which are chapters, I think, that unfortunately... Uh, often get missed because we say that Galatians is the great epistle of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. And it's true, it is. But it's also, in a sense, the great epistle of sanctification by grace through faith in Christ because, um, you know, he's dealing with these issues, uh, and I'm putting my spin on it in terms of in the light of what God has done in Christ, uh, you know, in your justification what does sanctification look like? Uh, what does the Christian life look like? And, and how is that connected uh, to the gospel? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in your introduction to your commentary, you, you really, I think, do a, a great job of spelling that out so that it's not just the issue of justification that Paul's dealing with here, although he does, and he does it very well, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there is this other side, this, this, sanctifi- this sanctification that flows naturally from it. And I think the brilliance, as you even indicated, the inspired brilliance of Paul, where he mm-hmm. first deals with the issue of justification in the first four chapters of the book, and then in chapters five and six deals with sanctification predominantly. And it's mm-hmm. and, and it's we as we understand it, it's that th- it's that what flows out of justification that results in sanctification, not the other way around. He didn't put sanctification up front and deal with that and then say, oh, by the way, uh, you're justified and hires how that happens. No, he, he puts the, the, the horse before the cart because if that's not there, these, mm-hmm. next, these last two chapters really have no meaning for you. Um, right. It'll be nothing but moralism. It'll be nothing but you still trying to accomplish God's pleasure, uh, trying to garner his pleasure by your actions and not understanding that you are already in the beloved because you have been justified by faith in Christ alone. That's where your dependence lies. And because of that, out of love and gratitude and a host of other things, this is what you should look like. Um, yeah. And and I think you're right. I think we do in some sense, uh, gloss over, or maybe even commit the error of spending too much time in chapters five and six and not really understanding how that is to be in the first place. Um, right. and we, we, we love chapter five with the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering. And, you know, people quote those, um, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Um, but, not understanding that those are resulting aspects of a person truly justified and truly a part of God's family. It's not something I, I do these things and God now likes me more because I do do them. And Correct. 
and that's that's the one of the elements that I wanted to highlight, which I'm not I'm not I don't want to say that um, that the this this my commentary here is is uh, exclusively um, uh, emphatic on this point, uh, and that you can't find it in other places. But I do want to say that when I hear people talking about the fruit of the spirit. Um, I infrequently hear it in uh, made you know the reference made and connection made to uh, not only the work of the Spirit as a consequence of uh, of Christ's uh, you know work. So you see that in Galatians uh, three fourteen that because of Christ's work you know the Spirit is therefore poured out upon us, but also in terms of the march of redemptive history that you know for Paul. His Bible was the Old Testament, right. and that what a lot of people don't realize is that there in the fifth chapter of Galatians, as he's been doing you know, throughout Galatians, is he goes back to the Old Testament, but in this particular case, he's drawing upon very discreetly and quietly uh, without announcing it. I, I wish Paul gave us footnotes. That would be great. But, um, you know, <laughs> sure. it would be wonderful to follow the breadcrumb trail back to the loaf. Well, maybe maybe the, the, the closest we get to footnotes is when he says, as it is written. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so, so, but at this point here, when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, there are a number of uh, passages from Isaiah that he's drawing upon, I think, so that he's discreetly saying what was prophesied in Isaiah and the outpouring of the Spirit, what was prophesied in Joel, uh, you know what was prophesied in the, by these Old Testament prophets has now come to pass because of the person and work of Christ, and with the outpouring of the Spirit, you have the uh, you know the fertility or the fecundity of the new creation, which means mm-hmm. that the righteousness and holiness that was long promised is has been outpoured in the work of the Spirit, so that now yes, we have the fruit of the Spirit, and that's why he says walk in the Spirit. Uh, so that you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. And even that phrase itself, I think, is evocative of Israel's uh, Old Testament wilderness wanderings, where they followed the Spirit in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so there he's drawing upon all of these Old Testament passages and imagery uh, to show them that, hey, the new creation is dawned with Christ, Therefore, breathe that air of the new creation, you know, breathe in, if you will, the Holy Spirit uh, through the means of grace. And, and that, and he is who, who will produce uh, that, uh, that uh, fruit of righteousness and sanctification in us. Yeah, it is a rich book, and uh, I'm sure you would talk all afternoon if you had the time to do that. And we don't want to read the book to our listeners, but um, I hope in this conversation, in, in, in we I try to hit some of the bigger points um, to sort of whet the appetite, as it were, for people who are pondering these things or looking at them and, and maybe want to pick up a copy of this book and, and, and work through it and for whatever purpose, uh, whether you're a pastor or you're just a layman and you're studying through Galatians on your own, there's um, it does stand uniquely in the New Testament canon in, in, the, in that sense that it's not more inspired, but in the sense that... Um, it's it's it it just conveys those great truths of justification and sanctification so clearly, and um, I think sometimes the language we get lost in the language and and our modern thinking process. But I think this book that you've written is going to would be a very big help for people as they as they work through um, what Paul says. I, I mean, I'll confess, I sometimes read Paul and I'm just like, huh. <laughs> what, what, what are you what, what are you saying? And I have to right. read it. I have to read it more than once to try to absorb it. And sometimes I still don't do that. But I, but it's not just Paul. I'm, I I think I have that general problem with a lot of things I read. But I think that's my old age or my older age, as it were. But 
I really appreciate yeah. work sure. that you put into this, and, and, and I know it's not a simple task to sit down and write this. And, and as I said in the beginning, and, and I'm looking forward to more uh, from this series. And um, I do have to ask this one question, though. Sure. Why do we need more commentaries? <laughs> I, I'm yeah, sitting in sitting in my study right now, and I've got uh, well, I've got any number of comment. I've got an, well, probably not as many as you do, but I have quite a few commentaries on numerous books of the Old and New Testament. And, and I, sometimes I think to myself, why do we need another commentary? Has the message changed all that dramatically? Right. No. Obviously, uh, you know, no. You know, the message never changes. But I will say this: is that um, you know, a couple of observations. First of all is that I think every generation has to personally own and appropriate the message of the gospel. And uh, I think to that end, you know, we can't uh, rest upon the coattails, if you will, of earlier generations. Not saying that you or anyone else is doing that, but it's just a broader reason, as to, you know, the first reason is to say as to why we need to do that. We each need to own the gospel, which is something in that sense that only that God can give that to us by his grace through faith in Christ. But I think secondarily, um, that means that in every generation, uh, God, you know, according to Ephesians 4, you know, that when he gives to Christ his uh, royal throne uh, you know, as a result of his uh, perfect obedience and sacrifice, there's, uh, he says in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following, and he puts that therefore in uh, Philippians 2, 9, that he exalts Christ, uh, you know, to have the name that is above every name. One of the things that Paul talks about as a result of the uh, resurrection and ascension and royal session of uh, the uh, at the right hand of the Father is that Christ then dispenses gifts to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and among those gifts to the church he gives uh, are uh, ministers, uh, ministers who have been gifted uh, not just in terms of whatever kinds of uh, literary or writing abilities that they have, which in one sense are common to all people, uh, but rather that they have been specifically been gifted by the Holy Spirit um, to preach and teach the Word of God, uh, something that is not democratically or uh, universally given to the church. And so in that sense, I think it's great that you know we can look at a series like this and and listen in, if you will, uh, to the preaching of uh, another generation of uh, gifted ministers of the gospel of Christ to hear how, not only how they have personally appropriated the truths of the gospel, but how God has gifted them uh, to teach and to preach uh, this generation uh, with the gospel uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, that, as it's situated within our own context, uh, that it's immediately irrelevant. I think with some things you read, you can benefit from a 16th century author because the, uh, of the unchanging nature of the gospel, but some of their concerns uh, may not have necessarily be the exact same ones that we have. And so you get a perfect fit, I think, in this way, as you can reflect upon these things. So, you know, um, sure, there's no end to writing books, <laughs> as the author of Ecclesiastes <laughs> right. says, which means there's no end to reading them. Uh, you know, but I think there's a good case to be made that uh, you know that that we can still benefit from even a new uh, new commentary series like this one, especially when you consider you know t- 
Perry Johnson, Joel B. Keith, Sinclair Ferguson, Kim Riddlebarger, uh, you know, all of these uh, terrific contributors, not counting myself. <laughs> I'm humbled to be included, and I consider it a great honor and a privilege, but I look at these, these list of contributors, uh, say, with the exception of myself, and say, wow, this is going to be a great series. Um, you know, so uh, in that sense, I hope that I have... Uh, been able to keep up with what I know will be uh, ter- terrific con- contributions uh, by these other authors, uh, and uh, that John Payne, I think, has done a terrific job in putting together a great roster of, of contributors. So, uh, yeah, so I think it can be quite beneficial for us. Well, that's well said, and I appreciate the way you said that, and I think you're right. I think there's an aspect that um these commentaries, these these new commentaries that come out, whether it's this one or it's another series, I think the the idea is that certainly in the 21st century, ministers are dealing with practical issues, and they're to deal with those issues from the text of the Word of God that doesn't change. But you're right, the 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 the, the applications of those things are things that we won't read. And as much as I like Owen, as much as I like mm-hmm. Thomas Manton. Uh, I don't. I won't find too many railings against you know, homosexual marriage or abortion. Right. I mean, they just that's not those weren't things that they were faced with as much, um, or if at all. And yet we're constantly dealing with those issues on a practical level. So I think that's well said, and and I appreciate the way you put that. I I with you. I I'm looking forward to the rest of the uh, works on this. I know it'll be a a long time coming as they get released little by little, but. Um, I hope to be uh, able to interview other authors as these come out and talk more specifically and, and hopefully create some excitement behind it as well. And I hope that this discussion has done that um, for the listeners. And um, But I do appreciate your time and your labors to the church. Um, I know we've talked before about your other books that you've done and um, that, that have been very helpful. Um, I'm thinking about your book on justification specifically and um, – and I would encourage people to get a copy of that as well. If they have not done so already, it is um, a good treatment, solid treatment of the Reformed understanding of the doctrine of justification, a critical doctrine. Luther says it's the article upon which the church stands or falls, and um, we need to understand that. So that's another book that our, my guest has, has authored, and um, uh, others as well. So, And I have lost track, actually, of all the works and the things that you're involved in. But um, this one, particularly, I'm looking forward to um, this series, and, and thankful to have a copy of the Galatians one as well already. But thank you for your time and for your labors um, to the church and to future future ministers out there in Westminster Seminary on the left coast, as they call it. Um, (laughs) I got to ask you, are you a baseball fan? Uh, not so much, although when I okay. have in the past, I followed the Giants, <laughs> which, oh. which doesn't bode well down here in Padre territory. Well, that's okay. I mean, you'll um, our, our director of development and marketing here at, at Greenville Seminary is a diehard Giants fan, diehard. And when he <laughs> listens to this now, he'll be thrilled that I said that and that you said that. Um, of course, him and I are always... Uh, yammering at each other because I'm a diehard Yankee fan, and so we're always, you know, going at it. But um, always in good fun, of course. But um, sure, that will do his heart, warm his heart to no end to know that you are a, you will follow the Giants if you're following it at all. But um, anyway, all right, good. well, Dr. Fesco, I appreciate your time, and um, and I trust the Lord will continue to bless you and your work, and um, as you labor for Him out there in uh, Westminster, Cal- uh, Westminster Seminary, California. Thanks for having me on, Bill, and you take care, and uh, God willing, I look forward to the next time.
great. Thank you. Thank You've been you. Listening. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. J.V. Fesco. He has authored a, a new commentary, a new book on a new commentary series, the Lectio Continua commentary series put out by Tola Lege um, Publishers. And if you want to get a copy of it, you can go to our website. It's confessingourhope.com. And I will have a link there to... Um, to the book and you can get it for yourself. It's not expensive. So I would encourage you to do so. It's on the book of Galatians um, and one that really is readable and you can pour over it and you can really come to understand the text. And as Paul laid it out for us and it's in an expository format. So you, you're reading a sermon as it were. And so you can glean and identify from that very practical, relevant information contained with it. Uh, coming up. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I say this every single time. I typically don't know what's going to, coming up and sometimes i know sometimes i don't the best way to find out as a listener is to go to our website confessingourhope.com and find out all information about what's going on in the podcast in the future and you can find that information there so until next time we thank you for listening to this particular edition and god bless